G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon, and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. Playing piano for nobody but me While he plays in Paris And wakes up in Rome Private planes to L.A. But it wasn't that way My guest today is quintessential New York singer-songwriter Julian Villard. His music sounds like someone loosening the necktie on a sharp suit in the dusk of a long day. There's a precision to each note and chord he chooses, and even the most sombre of his lyrics leaves you with a smile. His wit and vulnerability is reflected in titles like New York, I Love You When You're Mean, Me and My Mirror on a Saturday Night, and Fancy Words for Failure, which is also the title of his recently released new album. Comes for free, he just sings them a song. Julian, welcome to my favorite album. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Big big fan of the show. I'm ready to go. I'm psyched. Fantastic. <laughs> and I know you're probably going to want to qualify this answer, but uh, Julian, what is your favorite album? For the purposes of our conversation today, it is Billy Joel's Turnstiles. Great. See, I love doing a Billy Joel record on this show for two reasons. A, because Billy Joel is amazing, but also because it's going to piss a lot of people off. And I feel like (laughs) part of the purpose of this show is trying to make the case why the people who get, who will maybe like go past this on the, on the podcast stream and go, Billy Joel album, and then give it a listen. We, we should be able to turn them around and make them give Billy Joel another chance. Well, I'm I'm curious, like you know, because culturally in Australia, what what where does he sort of you know land? Because you know, I, I lived in London for about four years, and that was very interesting to me. You know, I, I'm from New York. I grew up here. Obviously, being a Jewish piano player, so, singer songwriter, like you know, you kind of can't get away from him. And there's a completely different perception of him in the UK as opposed to America. What's the perception in the UK? Well, he's actually not that big in the UK. He's not very that. He, he's sort of considered to be, which is hyster- the real songwriter, songwriter, and the, and the, and they all quote their song that they reference is Uptown Girl, <laughs> right? Interesting. <laughs> which is so bizarre because you know if there's, if there's any song that is the ultimate like music critic anthem, it's Uptown Girl. Like <laughs> yeah. you know that's that's the one. It's that's the oh this. <laughs> She's looking 
Yeah, that's true. And it's funny because like that, and that's not even. I mean, it's representative of him, but it's him trying to be Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, right? Well, I think that's you know, if 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 I'm going to say the overall sort of kind of conceit of Billy Joel that you have to buy into is that Billy Joel, it's Billy Joel as the mimic. And if you go through his entire catalog, you basically can see that every, there is no Billy Joel. It's just him doing other people, you know? And I think that's really fascinating. And he's actually a, an excellent mimic in real life. So, you know, when you hear It's Only Rock and Roll to Me, which, you know, is not a song people love, like that's him doing Mick Jagger. And when you hear him doing New York State of Mind, that's him doing Ray Charles or Tony Bennett. And once you start to understand that about him and to see that he's essentially this, he's really a songwriter and a songwriter in the mold of the golden age of songwriting, you know, from the American songbook, but also kind of coming out of the Brill Building thing where he really is trying to emulate that that thing, then I think you have a better understanding of him, sort of his place in the canon. The problem is, is that I don't think Billy Joel himself understands his own place in the canon. Billy Joel doesn't understand why he's as relevant as Bob Dylan. And that's really sad because, you know, it, Billy Joel seems like a nice life, but you're not Bob Dylan. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, like, I do. I think he did originally intend to have more of a kind of brill-building songwriter kind of career. And Totally. Like, his first, first record when he made Cold Spring Harbor, I don't think he was thinking in terms of having a, a career as an artist, but there was kind of encouraged, I think, by the label to go out and tour the record because that would help bring attention to the songs. And he kind of just developed... I mean, not by accident, but it, what was meant to be a side thing, his performing career, like he thought he was going to be Jimmy Webb and he turned out to be Billy Joel instead. Right. No, 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 that's true. And I think, I mean, it's every interview I've heard with him is that, you know, he was always sort of the front man by default in the bands that he was in because he was the only one who could kind of sing. And, you know, if, if you look at him too, that's kind of the, you know, I mean, he's he's a little bit of a schlub, you know, it's it, there, you can tell he's not exactly super concerned about his appearance. So, yeah, I mean, he, I, I get why he's, I guess is the word polemic, like I get why he is this divisive uh, figure, especially for anybody who likes music because they like sort of the image of themselves liking that music. He, you have to sort of be post a little bit post all that, you know, post coolness to like Billy Joel. Just it's like liking Michael McDonald or liking Kenny Loggins. It's in that world. You just sort of have to accept the music on its own terms. I think that's a great way of phrasing it. Actually, people who like music because they want to be the kind of person who likes that music. You know, it's yeah, it's just such a powerful. Because I do feel like a lot of people's taste is arrested in that high school idea of what's what are people going to think of me because I listen to this record. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's sort of what kind of the internet has sort of freed a lot of modern rock criticism from because it's now, you know, people can appreciate, there, there's all, you know, we're sentimental for the Backstreet Boys, you know, now. And it's, it's, it's just a matter of time before something that was ultimately, you know, sort of garbage pop fodder becomes a real, have any real critical value. It just needs that 10, 15, 20 years past it. You know, back in, in the 70s when he came out, he was sort of, uh, I think a lot of rock critics, you know, the, the Robert Criscows and, you know, the sort of Lester Bangs, he was sort of a threat to to what they considered to be the power or the majesty of rock. You know, here was this guy who was this sort of watered down, uh, just, you know, not he wasn't really doing anything. He was just being pure, making music for, for 
not necessarily commercial reasons, but for music's sake. And that's what I think of him as. I mean, I think, you know, that's sort of why I maybe am a little bit more forgiving in some of the borderline just egregious lyrics, especially there's some on this record too that are pretty, pretty, if you start looking at these lyrics, they're pretty awful. <laughs> but um, I feel that way too. I think, and also because I'm a musician, I, I like things for various reasons and, I, and I'm, I'm into content. I don't really care about the form as much. It doesn't reflect on me. I don't think, you know, even though ironically, uh, Billy Joel, I couldn't be more similar to Billy Joel with my own music <laughs> in a lot of ways. And for years, I, would, I wouldn't do it. You know, I, I do a lot of cover work and I would never play Piano Man or I would never play, you know, and now I don't, I'm like, great, let's do it. You know, it's, it, and they're great songs, you know, they, it, they, you find that when you play them, maybe Piano Man is the only one that's still, still a little tough to swallow. But, you know, New York State of Mind is a gorgeous song. It's fun to play. Well, let's take it back to where it started for you and Billy Joel. So, and and this record in particular. So, tell me how you originally encountered Billy Joel. What your attitude towards him was at the time. Where you were at with your musical development, and how you fell in love with Turnstiles. Well, you know, Billy Joel. As growing up in the kind of New York area, you're kind of just. I mean, especially in the '80s. I'm born in '79. I mean, that was you know the Billy Joel Greatest Hit album was basically like. I mean, it was just, it was just there. <laughs> it was in my house. You know, it was that and Michael Jackson were kind of the two things that were just in my house. And it was the one musical bond that I sort of had with my parents. My father is French uh, and a French immigrant from Paris. My mother's from Alabama. You know, my dad liked Celine Dion. He has very strange taste in music, but everybody liked Billy Joel, you know, and that was sort of the crossroads. So for me growing up, it was the greatest hits record in Innocent Man. It was, you know, that iteration of Billy Joel. And then as I got older, into my teens, and I started making music, I, I kind of pushed away from it because it was very similar. I mean, you know, I, 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 not that I was making the same kind of music, but I was playing piano and I'm writing melodic music that, you know, has a bit of that confessional feel to it. So I, you know, instantly would gravitate towards like the cooler ilk of that stuff, like the Tom Waits or, you know, I only kind of came back around on him maybe in the last decade or so. And I think that was when I finally just realized that it wasn't necessarily a threat to my artistry I guess in in some way you know it wasn't when people were you know would yell at me to play Billy Joel songs at gigs it wasn't you know it was their way of basically communicating to me that they liked my music and then I think that's when I started going back through the catalog 
And, you know, I, I knew all the hits. I knew all these songs. But that's about a decade ago is when I really started to kind of make my way through his discography. And it's, it's for me, it's those three records. It starts with Turnstiles. It's followed by The Stranger and then 52nd Street. That's sort of the prime 70s Billy Joel and arguably those are his finest records. I mean, you could throw Glass Houses in there, but I understand why people have a little bit of a beef off that record because it is this answer to punk. But when you talk about pure Billy Joel, the, the distilled essence of what he does and does well, it's those three records. And I think it all starts with Turnstiles, which ironically was not a hit. It was a flop. That's what people don't realize. Like those, that was a, it wasn't until The Stranger that he really became a big act. And Turnstiles was his fourth record. And it's, it's, you know, it's got New York State of Mind on it. it. It's a classic Billy Joel record is the first one. And it didn't, you know, it didn't even crack any... Le- it, it only became platinum retroactively after he became Billy Joel. I, I feel like he had a lot of that through his early career songs, on earlier records even, that are now considered, you know, classics or thought of as massive hits, you know, like Piano Man, but didn't make that much of an impression when they were originally released and they've sort of in retrospect been ascribed classic status because they've lasted so long. Yeah, I think he's benefited from this renaissance and also in New York, I don't know if, if you guys, if it's sort of made its way over there, but he started this residency where he plays Madison Square Garden every month. Yeah. Which is just insane if you think about that. Like, He's just doing, oh, I'm going to do my monthly gig at a stadium of <laughs> or, or 18,000 seat arena. And it just, it's never not sold out. And it's been going now for four years. So, you know, it's somewhere along the line, he kind of became not just this emblem. You know, what, what spring scene is to Jersey, he sort of is to Long Island and kind of greater New York. This sort of, you know, he is the essence of, of a New York artist. Um, and, and again, you know, all these songs have kind of found greater meaning later on. And, it, and, and now you've, it's getting kind of shown to generations because, you, you know, there are 20-year-olds who have none of this context who didn't live through any of Billy Joel. And they hear, oh, that, you know, that classic song, New York State of Mind. But, you know, and I, I wouldn't know I wasn't alive when Turnstiles came out. So, but apparently, yeah, a lot of those songs were not hits when they came out. Well, the New York of it all, I think, is particularly prominent on this record because it's kind of his New York homecoming record. Like he'd been out in L.A. for three right. years trying to make it out there and had gotten really disillusioned with, in a kind of a classic way that people seem to get disillusioned with L.A. when they you know, they go there with you know dreams in their eyes and then after a few years they go, this place is full of wankers, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Totally. So his story is interesting too because he also was going to L.A. to run away from this production deal that he had signed. So he was signed to this guy Artie Rip. When you look in classic music business textbooks and they cite horrible record deals, this is the example. <laughs> <laughs> and and the guy's name, I mean, his name literally was Artie Rip. I mean, it's like Bertie Madoff. It's that bad. <laughs> and and he signed this crazy deal. So he goes out to L.A. partially to reinvigorate his career, but partially to basically get out of this situation with um, family records, which if you look at any old uh, records, I think I think it ends by the Greatest Hits album. They all have this family records logo on them. And that's this part of this production deal. He was continually paying this guy for like 10 albums or whatever it ended up being. And another thing that's crazy about this record, and I don't think a lot of people know this, is that it, it there's another version of this record that existed before he made it, where he made it at Caribou, uh, Caribou Recordings, where Elton John did Captain Fantastic and Caribou and Rock of the Westies. And it's got Elton John's band on it. And then he nixed that version of Turnstiles 
and then brought the record to New York to make it. And when he brought it to New York, he produced it himself and he played with right. his with his road band, which are, you know, the classic, you know, Liberty DeVito and all those guys, which, you know, you made the Springsteen comparison a minute ago. And I've always thought of his, you know, his band with those guys as kind of his E Street band and a big part of his sound. Absolutely. I mean, and, 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 you know, it's pretty clear timing wise, like this record, Born to Run had a lot of influence on this record. You know, it, it was like when you listen to Say Goodbye to Hollywood and weirdly enough, I think Ronnie Spector ended up doing a ver- releasing a single of that with the E Street Band afterwards, about like a year or two later. So he, you know, there, there's a lot of that, that notion. But I play with a couple guys. Uh, I play with this guy, Malcolm Gold, in, in a few projects. And he's in a band called The Lords of 52nd Street, which essentially is this other Billy Joel band that's got, you know, because none of them play with him anymore. Richie Cannata, Liberty DeVito, but they form their own Billy Joel band. Right. And they go out and tour with a, with a fake Billy Joel. So I was talking to Malcolm about this. And apparently, you know, this band actually, his touring band didn't even really, ex- like this record is sort of what made the band. I think Richie Cannata had never played with Billy Joel. And the first time he ever played with him was on the sax solo on New York State of Mind. Right. So this is kind of the record. It's uh, that was like so. I I wanted to get a little extra special intel for this record because I'm you know I'm in the home. I mean I'm like steeped in Billy Joelness. So I I apparently you know and he he knows he knows Richie he knows Liberty that this is the record that sort of then created that band. Interesting. And I guess that is kind of similar in a way to Born to Run because like there's a version of the E Street Band. Which is kind of the classic version that didn't exist until they finished making that record, and the band that in the version of the band that got assembled as they were cutting that is, you know, Max Weinberg joined the band during that period. Who's who's the um who's the drummer on that? And I always forget. It's like a really big drummer, big session drummer who's actually on Born to Run on the record. It's not Max. It's a isn't it um, Boom Carter? That's it's a very similar, very similar type situation. The New Yorkness of it. I mean, obviously, New York State of Mind is on this record. Say Goodbye to Hollywood is about leaving LA to come back to New York. And then Miami 2017, Send the Lights Go Out on Broadway, which finishes the record, is a New York anthem that's sort of had various afterlifes and been recontextualized over the years in the sort of aftermath of these. Um, tragic events in New York and he's ended up performing it on a lot of tribute concerts through the years. I mean, there is, you can get it. And apparently I looked it up that like this, this, the whole photo shoot is in the Astor place um, on the album. It's, it's in the Astor place subway. And I guess every person on the record uh, in the front is supposed to represent a different character from a song, (laughs) which always cracks me up because I think the guy with the tie in the back in the books is supposed to be James. Oh right! <laughs> it's like, um, you know, it's a little, 
I think it's like a, a very thin attempt at a concept record, I guess. Yeah, no, I mean, it's there's a lot of New Yorkness in the songs, which is also, you know, those songs, Summer Highland Falls, uh, I've Loved These Days, and Angry Young Man, and, and Miami 17, 2017, they're like staples of his show. If you go see him live, you know, those are like the diehard Billy Joel fans are losing their cookies over those songs. Well, I think, I mean, New York State of Mind is my favorite Billy Joel song, and I feel like it's one of the few successful sort of post-50s attempts at writing a standard, like something that totally could have been part of the great American songbook. I think if you view him in that context, so much of his stuff makes sense, like sort of in this sort of post-Brill building, post-Great uh, America, because, you know, that. I mean, he does that again later on with Baby Grand, on some of his other, you know, he has that ability to kind of create these sort of kind of modern standards, you know? It's like a song you could see Sinatra singing or, you know, or Tony Bennett. And, and, and I think that's and, and when you, pl- you know, there's a real like, I mean, that song definitely is it's a little cheesy at times, but there it has this like timelessness to it that just, you know, it, 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 especially the way it's constructed, it just kind of moves, you know, and it and and a lot of those sentiments about New York, especially, you know, the Hudson River line, all these things, they're real, you know, the, you can still take a Greyhound on the Hudson River line. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good example of songwriting where it's just specific enough. There's, like, place names and activities and, like, the you know, the daily news, things in there that are really specific and conjure up images and make people who are listening to it. It feels real because that's stuff that you actually do when you live in New York, but at the same time, it's not tied to anything too time-specific, so... It's a song that's sort of just as true about New York in 2017 as it was about New York in 1976. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, like, to some, you know, because obviously you have a you you have a completely different context for the song than I, you know, growing up here, that song feels like a, you know, it's like a Yankees uniform or, a, 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 you know, it's like the MTA. It's just a part of the, you know, oh, New York State of Mind. It's just like, you know, it's like New York, New York or something. It has that gra- gravity to it, but. You know, I I wonder, you know, not being from here, it, it, I can see how it it sort of creates this romantic image of of the city, and 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 I just it's just but yet the stuff he's doing is so specific. You know, the, the lyric is such a specific lyric that that why it's it's so staggering to me is that it all you know it all holds true still. I mean, the Daily News, you know, that's still around. He switches that live to Newsday, which is another terrible <laughs> newspaper. It is. It actually besides the Greyhound on the Hudson River line, it is pretty. Uh, not generic, but it's like you're right. It has the, enough specificity to feel specific, but yet timeless. Yeah, and I feel like the the romance of New York has never really gone away. Even you know, like the period when he moved back and when he wrote this, New York was going through a pretty lousy period. Oh yeah, it was on the verge of bankruptcy and there was that that famous newspaper headline when the when the city went to the white house to the federal government for a bailout and the and they got knocked back and there was that headline ford to city drop dead i love that you know this like you're you you jeremy you're good man <laughs> like yeah this is like there's actually a huge festival on this summer in in, in new york at the film forum called ford it's a city drop dead and it's just all 70s mu- movies from 
New York, you know, like Death Wish and The Warriors and Three Days of the Condor, Eyes of Laura Mars, like all these hot, the hot rock, all, you know, because it, it's, it's, it, it's palpable in, in a lot of the stuff that comes out of that, that time period in, in cinema, too. You can see this, this different vision of New York and it's hysterical, you know, growing up here, I, I definitely, in the 80s, there was still remnants of that. But now, I mean, it's completely whitewashed. You know, the idea that you had when this album come, came out, you know, Death Wish comes out the year before and you've got Charles Bronson running around trying to kill, you know, uh, hoodlums in Riverside Park, which now, you know, are multi-million dollar apartments. <laughs> you know, that's a gorgeous view, you know, <laughs> very desirable to live by Riverside Park. And then it's, you know, I, I, I just, there is, I guess, can, yeah, if you think about it of the time, like it's sort of him getting that, you know, kind of writing that love letter to New York when it really needed it. Yeah, I feel like this is kind of his New York pride record in a lot of ways and kind of reclaiming his identity as a New Yorker, which might have gotten a bit chipped away when he was lost in L.A. for those years. Absolutely. We were talking about you know Brian Koppelman, who's been a, a guest on this show a few times. Yeah, I, Brian. I remember him saying at one point that the only bad thing about raising his kids in New York is that they'll never be able to achieve the dream of moving to New York. They'll, sure. Because like, they'll have just grown up here and it'll always be uh, a part of them. But I think, you know, maybe stepping out of the city for a few years gave Billy Joel that appreciation for how big a part of who he was the city was. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, not to like draw parallels <laughs> in my own career, but my I have a, a new record out now. But the which but the, the record before it is is a New York City concept record called "If You Don't Like It You Can Leave," and I live I moved away to London. I grew up here, like I grew up I grew up in Manhattan. And, you know, Billy Joel's from Long Island. No disrespect, Billy, if you're listening. <laughs> Who knows? I don't think he even knows what a podcast is. Growing up in uh, like leaving New York for London for London for four years and coming back, that I sort of felt felt that falling back in love with the city, and that prompted me to write that record as well. And I think what's what's also interesting too, you know, it's like this is his fourth record, and I think regardless if you like Billy Joel or not, if you, if you put someone who hated Billy Joel and put him in a room and, and forced them to listen to the entire catalog, <laughs> I think I honestly think that Turnstiles it kind of has to be in his top three records no matter what. And it's crazy to think that this it wasn't until he gets to The Stranger, which is album number five, and you think about that in the modern musical climate, there's no way that would ever exist where at Columbia. You know, he's he's made his indie record, which is Cold Spring Harbor, which got pressed at the wrong speed. You know, there's all this drama around that record. And then he makes Piano Man, has a minor hit. Then he makes Street Live Serenader, and he has a minor hit. So he somehow squeaks out a third record, and there are no hits. But yet, you hear this, and you hear the, the kind of, the table has been set for The Stranger. You know, he's, he's written Angry Young Man, which is kind of like the proto version of Scenes for Italian Restaurant. You know, these long suites that, you know, he was get, he's getting the formula of kind of what becomes Billy Joel. You know, James is, or, or uh, Summer Highland Falls has a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of the uh, Just the Way You Are kind of built in that sort of, you know, that kind of schmaltzy ballad feel. So I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely has, it, you can hear the romance still in the record. And it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a beautifully underproduced record. If you listen to it, it's super raw. You hear the performances. There's not a lot of string writing. The string writing is all done by Ken Asher, who wrote Rainbow Connection. How about that? Right. There's a little tidbit for you. He's like, you know, also, in addition to writing a bunch of great songs with Paul Williams for the Muppet movie, was a, you know, big time string arranger. 
So yeah, it's I mean it's it's just it's it still feels like when you hear that version of New York State of Mind, and and there's a reason when 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 you're a piano guy like you learn those songs cold. Like I play New York State of Mind on a gig or whatever if I have to play it, I play his intro to the to the T. Like those are parts; they're not him riffing, and it's it, it because it, it, the recording there. That's what's also great. like this recording. It's not just the songs; like the recording is in your brain too. Well, let's move over to the final track on the record and talk about that for a little bit, which is Miami sure. 2017, open bracket, seeing the lights go out on Broadway, close bracket. <laughs> His post-apocalyptic scenario where <laughs> he might, maybe he just come, I guess the Warriors wasn't made yet. I'm trying to think of the the, the movie he saw when he wrote this thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, weird, it's a weird one. <laughs> like, this is a case, if you don't like Billy Joel and you hear this song, you might be like, all right, come on, man. And I kind of have to be like, all right, I'll give it to you. This song is a little ridiculous, but it's great. Well, and also now, because we should explain, like, this song is about, you know, someone who's moved out of New York to sort of escape a a semi-apocalyptic degradation of the city, moved to Miami to retire, and is, um, is telling these kids, these grandkids, the stories about what happened to to New York like I was there I saw the lights go out on Broadway which is an interesting thing to think about you know now that we're actually in 2017 right right well this the, there's the the actual reality that <laughs> that, that that may very well happen <laughs> or at least almost happened for you know in a, about 16 years ago um, and I also think it's funny when he plays it live you know the crowd gets so psyched because they're all a bunch of Long Island and Queens people they're so psyched to see Manhattan explode in the song you know <laughs> it's like, it's all about somehow Brooklyn and Queens like Long Island survives but Manhattan's just totally toasted and, and, and I, I think it's they're always like yeah you know when he gets to the end and he's talking about they sank Manhattan out at sea you know which is hysterical so like I don't know how that works because Manhattan technically isn't even in the sea whatever I'm not I, I, I won't critically analyze you're going the, all Neil deGrasse Tyson on the um, on the lyrics of the song. I know. I'm exactly. I'm not going to you know get Neil deGrasse Tyson on a Star Trek episode right now or whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's it's you know, and, and it is it is interesting that that you know he sort of. I mean, it feels it's ridiculous. It's like a Ray Bradbury story or something. And but yeah, there is this you know there's there is this you know post nine eleven New York that <laughs> all this stuff kind of feels very real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and as. I mentioned before he has ended up bringing this song out as kind of a New York survival 
anthem at various points. He played it at the concert for New York after 9-11. Right. He played right. it at the, the Hurricane Sandy 12-12-12 concert. And, yeah, I mean, I guess he's still playing it now and you could even ascribe a uh, a, a post-Trump election uh, spirit to it at the moment, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, it's like I don't even know what New York thinks about that. It's, I mean, it's, it's just so because his name is like plastered all over the city. <laughs> so there's, you know, all these sad people. They live in these Trump buildings, and they're trying to get the, the branding off the building. You know, because um, he's licensed all. You know, his name is everywhere in New York. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he he definitely has worked that angle. Although I don't think he's come out. Actually, maybe he did come out and say something political recently about Trump. There, I might have read something in, in, some, in some sort of preview that was written about him, of him talking, kind of coming out against Trump, because it's, it's, it's hard to tell. You know, he definitely has a, a real blue collar, you know, not Republican, but sort of Long Island following. You know, and it's not he's his identity is, is much it's not nearly as sort of like unionist as Springsteen. He's much more like there, there is a class to his music. You know, it's it's sort of like a upward mo and up like I think I think of Billy Joel as being upwardly mobile, you know. So it's like a poor person trying to get to middle class or a middle class person trying to be rich. Where Springsteen's all about, you know, he, he sort of has cultivated this roots image, this Pete Seeger kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like the Beatles Stones thing in a way. Totally, whereas, totally. Whereas the Beatles are like all their music is hugely. Not all. Most of their music is hugely aspirational, and it feels aspirational, and it really feels like you know these working class kids riding their way out of having to ever work on the docks by creating this like great music that's going to lift everyone up. Whereas the the Stones are trying to emulate their heroes, who were all like you know poor working class black guys from the south. I've never, you know, it's funny. Like I've 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 never really heard them talk about each other. You know, and I know they're very aware of each other, but other than you know, they you know they're they're in that level of of rare air. But they're they are the two most iconic New York area artists. Maybe Frank Sinatra. That's the only one you could kind of throw in there that just bleeds New Yorkness, you know, or New York Greater New York area. Because Springsteen, even though he's a Jersey act, it's like it's still that whole thing. And you can make an argument that you know Billy is really a Long Island act. Well, there's a um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think it was the 20th, 25th anniversary of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few years back, and they staged this concert at Madison Square Garden, and Springsteen brings out Billy Joel during his set. There will be a reunion. Are you ready for the summit at the Garden? Are you ready for the bridge and tunnel summit meeting right here, right now? Because Long Island is about to meet New Jersey on the neutral ground of New York City. So I'd like to invite the king of Long Island to come on out and meet the East Street Band. Mr. Billy Joe. I'm taking a greyhound on the Hudson River line. I've seen all the movie stars and the 
fancy cars and limousines. I've been high in rockets under the evergreens, but I know what I'm needing. I don't wanna waste more time. Because I, you know, my my own personal taste again, not 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 that I consider Billy and Bruce Springsteen to be lowbrow for me, because you know I I come from, I mean, my gods, I mean they they are in my pantheon, but you know I'm this total like I'm obsessed with Randy Newman and Stephen Sondheim and Jimmy Webb, so Billy Joel obviously is you know maybe on the kind of more hamburger end of that spectrum (laughs) um but it's interesting to me that people from an like and that's why i think it's cool to have this conversation with you is that from another country you guys have a very different perspective on them which in a way is almost more valid because i think so much of that especially for billy like so much of that new yorkness about him is kind of non it's almost non-intentional like this is the most new york the records get you know i mean i guess 52nd street there's some moments there but he, it's not quite like Springsteen where there's, you know, when you think of Rosalita or some of these songs where there's so much about it. His, his song, Billy Joel's songs sort of have like a, like a New York flavor about them. They're not like, and, and yet he's been completely adopted by the city. I mean, to the point where when he does these things at Madison Square Garden, they put, you know, the New York Knicks, the New York, like as, as you know, sort of MSG brands, New York Knicks, New York Rangers, Billy Joel. Wow. <laughs> like he's a you know but he's and i just think it's so interesting how he's been adopted but th- there's this whole other side of his music that's not very new york you know i mean the whole innocent man record good night saigon saigon all that stuff off of um which is i think another deeply underrated record uh nylon curtain he's never explicitly been this new york person you know i mean i in, and even the, in the way he talks you know, it's just he sort of has kind of fallen into this zone where he's the guy. I mean, I guess if you write a song called New York State of Mind, that's what happens. And you're right. I feel like he has been, he's an emblem of the city, which is as much about the way the city has treated him as the way he's explicitly portrayed that in his art. And I, I, I love that idea that he's become, he is like a sports team at the garden. Oh, it's hysterical. Yeah. yeah, he really is. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Like you you'll go there and it's in their press room on the wallpaper. There's like a logo. <laughs> it's as if he's a sports team. <laughs> and there's that whole dilemma of it which is also interesting too. I mean, the guy hasn't put out new music since 1994. Yeah, let's talk about that. Maybe let's sort of like talk about that on our way to wrapping up because Sure. He's I and I heard him talk about it in an interview once and I think he basically just said something like you know, I, I haven't written, I don't feel like writing much. I haven't written any great songs. Why would I put another record out? And that's just, I feel like almost no artist, no pop artist in history has ever actually come to that conclusion about their own work. It's it's a very interesting, yeah, I mean, I have mixed, well, I've heard him say several things. I've heard him say that, right? I've also, because he's basically like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Which is a very strange thing. I've also heard him say that he puts so much of himself into those songs and so much of his life that he doesn't want to do that anymore. That basically he reached a point where he didn't want to. I mean, my personal belief is that he's an alcoholic, which is, you know, kind of pretty well reported. And obviously 
there's sort of stages of that, but you know, he get, you know, it used to be a running joke about 10 years ago, he would get into car wrecks left and right. And then, you know, Chuck Klosterman, another great writer who, if you can ever get him on your show, you should totally get him. Amazing. Um, get him to talk about guns and roses or something. And, uh, he wrote a couple of profiles of Billy Joel, one really famous one in the New Yorker where it was a whole thing where basically they got, uh, the, he made Billy Joel look really sad that he was just renting an apartment in, in Manhattan to try and meet girls. You know, I think this was in between post Christie and pre wife number three. He's on wife number four with another kid now. So I just think he sort of fell into this level of, of, of dysfunction in his life where he's not really creating. And, you know, yeah, I mean, do I listen to any new Elton John or Stevie Wonder records? I don't know. I mean, first of all, I don't even know if Stevie Wonder's made a record in, in 12 years, but it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a vital part of these guys. You want them to continue creating, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Cause as you, yeah, as you say, like sometimes a lot of people when they've been doing that for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, you, you run out of juice after a while and the new records aren't going to be great, but there's always the possibility, you know, I mean, for me, it's someone like Elvis Costello where every new record, even if it's not, as good as the best thing he's ever put out, there's going to be three or four amazing songs and sometimes a whole amazing record. And, you know, even if something's a dud, you just want them to, you want the possibility, you want to seem like they still think that they might have something left to say or left in them. I mean, Elvis is an interesting one because he's, he's so like, there's a lot of cerebral activity there, which is, I don't think what goes on with Billy Joel, you know, Elvis is a very, like and yeah, I think that's sort of a lot of that spurs his creation. I don't think Billy Joel can intellectually approach approach music. I think he just he has to be you know he is and, and I think that's sort of the appeal of his music is that it's so naturalistic. You know, it's it's elemental when you listen to the melodies. They just have this gravity to them. They just move to these places that feel right. You know, and they feel and surprising but yet familiar. There is, you know, I think he's probably at a point where he doesn't even know how to do it anymore. He's been so far disconnected from it. I guess that sort of suits him because it's like, well, he's just kind of playing the hits and going out there. And but there is something a little sad about that, you know, because the, th the idea is maybe there is, you know, it's pro it's probably really cheesy if he puts out another record. But maybe there is that one great song that comes out of it. And and, and I, I, I'm like, you know, someone like McCartney is a great example, I think, too. Because, like, how many duds has McCartney put out there? And then every now and then, you know, he'll put out something like Chaos and Creation, which I think is a brilliant record, you know, and I think was worth maybe <laughs> whatever. Maybe there are other records like Press to Play I could pass on or whatever. You know, certain records that – that. but I do think the fact that, you know, we wouldn't have a record like that. And there is something really beautiful about – McCartney writing a song like Jenny Wren, which is sort of a sequel to Blackbird, you know? It would be cool to see, hear a sequel to Scenes from Italian Restaurant or something. Yeah. You know, even if he's just b building on his own legacy, it's fine. I, I would just, I would be interested. And that was something, too, when I saw him live that I was always I bummed about. I actually had an opportunity to see him on the Garden thing. Uh, one of my, I'm very close with Jamie Cullum. I don't know if you know who he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so Jamie was opening for him and he invited me down. And I, I, I mean, I basically had a, aneurysm there I, like i got to see i walked into billy joel empty you know madison square garden a massive new york knicks fan standing on the floor he's playing where the or, where's the orchestra i just like kind of 
had a spaz out for wow. me and 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 yeah, I mean it was almost better than the show, but he didn't play a single song solo piano the entire show. And I was like, "Wow, man, you know, this is cool, but I don't want to see you with a, like you're you're the piano man." Like, you know, give me, you know, even Stevie Wonder will do a solo song or, you know, give me one solo song just cuz that's that's what I want. I want the elemental thing and he just seems like, you know, there's a lot of you know, I guess he's just living that life. Uh, but, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe he will. Maybe maybe one day he'll sit down and, and spend the time to do it. Well, yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, I think regardless, as a result of this conversation, I'm booking tickets to one of those Madison Square Garden Oh, my shows. God. I am literally- Jeremy, if you come, I am, I am officially... I get I get you for thirty six hours. We're gonna I'm gonna give you like the full New York tasting menu to prep you for the gig. So you'll understand every lyric, all the perspectives. We'll go to the top of the Empire State Building, we'll walk to Brooklyn Bridge, we'll get some serious bagels. Like I'm your man. Let me let me prep you for the Billy Joel gig. So you're like, you know, you go in, it's like you're ready. You're <laughs> that would be when you amazing. hear Miami twenty seventeen. When you hear Miami twenty seventeen, you'll know every reference. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> the Billy Joel tour. Of New York, I'm that. Listen, there. I'm. I'm ready. I'm at that point in my life. I'm ready to. Uh, I'm ready to, to be that guy. Let's do it, man. <laughs> so, final question: When sure. you put this record on now, when you listen to Turnstiles, how does it make you feel to listen to it these days? And also, you know, what influence has it had on your own music? This record, almost more than The Stranger or Fifty Second Street, when I put it on. I'm always surprised how much I like it. It just feels so natural. It's it's like, you know, and that's the thing about Billy that I think people don't quite get. It's like watching Mickey Mantle hit a ball or watching S- Steph Curry shoot a jump shot. You're watching this guy who's clearly a musical genius. Like, you kind of can't debate that. I don't think anybody can really debate his proficiency and his way with a melody. Just sort of be natural and unfettered and just sort of be himself without restraints. And, you know, as much as Phil Ramone is probably my favorite producer of all time, you know, there's there's a slickness to the later records that I think at times sort of accentuates the saccharine elements of his rec- of, of of him. But when you hear this with this band, with Liberty DeVito, with this sort of rock kind of, it, 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 it's I'm always surprised every time I put it on. And I love the length. It's eight songs. It's like a 30-minute record. It's, it's perfect. It's like a perfect dish. And, you know, I, I don't so much connect with this record as much lyrically, like thematically I connect with it. I think some of the lyrics of this thing are not quite as insightful, but they're, they have their own kind of charm to them, you know? So, and it, it, it paints this accurate picture of, of a person, of him at that time. And, and it's like, it is actually, I'm actually surprised at how refreshing this record is every time I listen to it. Like, and, and I'm not listening to turnstiles all the time. But it's not like when I put on Thriller. Like, I can't even listen to Thriller anymore. As much as I am obsessed with that record, it's hard to be in the headspace to listen to that record. And I would say the same thing with The Stranger. You know, you put on, I hear Anthony's song. I mean, I know that stuff's so cool. But for whatever reason, maybe it's just the lack of production or the bare bonesness. I'm able to really listen to the songs on this record and just sit and enjoy it. And I can listen to New York State of Mind. And I don't feel like burnt out on it. It's not, I don't hear that sax solo and I'm like, oh God, that note. And, and, it, and, you know, as a musician, I listen to stuff all the time. So it's really awesome to be able to put something on that feels fresh 
and 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 this to me feels like kind of the freshest Billy Joel album. Like if you're gonna pick an album that just sort of it just every time you do it, the performances, the whole thing just it feels un it feels not thought out, which is always kind of what I'm looking for in a record. Well, Julian, thanks for talking to me today about one of your favorite albums. Thanks so much, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. <laughs>